Welcome to the Neuroscience for Sales Success Podcast, rewiring your brain in three, two, one. This show exists for one purpose and one purpose only, to create rapid business growth. These tactics can be applied to your career and bring instant transformation. It's brutally honest, refreshing, and proactive. It's gonna hit you where you live because it's applicable and relatable. It's unconventional and dependable. This is the show where you are developed as a leader. You are developed as a high achiever. You are developed in a way that gives you a full life, one of purpose, passion, power, and prosperity. And here is your host, Kalen Ellsbury. Hey Sharks, welcome back to Neuroscience for Sales Success. I'm Kalen Ellsbury and I'm here today with one of my all-time favorite people. And he's gonna introduce himself, explain a little bit about his biz, And the reason I wanted to bring him on board is because when I first started down in the sales venture training, he was the one person I called and I was like, yo, give me tips. How do I do this? So I thought it'd be cool to bring him on the show, have him introduce a bit about his background and tell you guys how you can leverage some of the stuff that he's known to grow your own business. So with that, you want to introduce yourself? Yes. My name is Ali Mirza. I am the founder and CEO of Rose Garden Consulting. Uh, We help companies scale their sales teams. How do you do that? (laughs) Yeah, that's the million dollar question. So we, a lot of, a lot of the organizations that we work with, typically we're working hand in hand with the founder uh, who still is um, a part of the sales team and they might have a smaller sales team. Uh, but they are the ones bringing in still most of the money. Um, and ultimately, what we're trying to do is get them out of that salesperson role. A lot of the clients want to speak to them because, you know, they are the delicate genius. So what we don't do is look at what the founder does, write it down, and then tell the salespeople to do that because that that just does not work. Uh, what we look to do is really understand what are the intangibles that the clients are buying that are not typically being discussed on the founder's calls. Uh, the founder themselves is usually having, walks in with a completely different level of clout and um, has completely different conversations than the salesperson. The salesperson is starting uh, a lot further back um, in terms of having to build that rapport, that respect, that trust. So we look to see what are those intangibles that the founder already walks in with. We start there and then as we develop and build out those processes. Um, We create a playbook and we train towards that playbook. Well, that doesn't sound easy. Is it easier than it comes off? Oh yeah. No, it's super, super straightforward. Takes us about 20 minutes and we're in and out. Oh, well, high five to you. I was like, wait, what? No, it's it's usually, I'd say, uh, plus or minus about a six-month process. Most, that's, that I would say is our typical engagement. There Um, we go. Yeah. So two things stood out to me. Number one, I didn't realize how deep your voice is in all the times we chatted. So if anybody's curious, he has a deep voice, completely random and true. And then number two, one of the things that's intriguing is so... I've been working a lot with with sales teams and the founders, and there's always this this complex of their fear of, I want the business to grow, and I recognize that it will not grow if they stay in the sales role. What are some of the things you've done to help them kind of overcome that? Or when when they come to you, are they they ready to to launch? Usually they are. Um, They are and they aren't. They say they are. But Uh, all of their behavior and... um, all of, uh, you know, 
everything they're doing would dictate that they are not ready. And I understand where they're coming from. Ultimately, they're operating from a place of fear because any time they have tried to hand off the sales, uh, it's been a catastrophe. And so ultimately what ends up happening is, well, when the sales go down, money goes down and then they um, it's fight or flight type of deal. Uh, they become very reactive and typically they'll overcorrect and bring um, even more you know, inside of their fold. So um, they are operating typically from that fear, but usually it becomes bandwidth, constra- bandwidth constraints. It becomes uh, growth issues that, you know, at the end of the day, they only have so many, so many hours in a day. And as they become bigger and bigger and are starting to make more money, um, you know, you, you don't, I, I saw, you know, give an example, I won't share which client it is, but they, they had a flagship um, solution product that they would be selling all the time. It got to a point where the, the founder was calling it a little buddy um, because they just started coming out with more and more products, more and more solutions that were um, much higher ticket. And their flagship, like he just couldn't care to sell that anymore because it just literally was not worth his time anymore. So he started referring to him, you know, jokingly in-house, but referring to them as a little buddy. And just because, and, and, I, and I see that happen time and time again. So if you really are looking to grow and really looking to, to kind of take those next steps, you do have to multiply yourself through others, but you can't just hand off your sales team because um, that, that's your money. So you need to make sure that you're handing it off in a competent and a capable situation. One thing we always talk about, you brought up two really good points. So the fight or flight and the whole concept of, you know, you you need that team side of it. So in the fight or flight, it's interesting. I just had Dan Miller on the show. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he was the uh, Vistage Speaker of the Year. And his whole concept is health and wellness, right? So at mm-hmm. first you're like, why would that be on a sales show? And as you know, we're on the neuroscience side of it, not necessarily the tactical how to grow side. What gets fascinating is he said, anytime leaders have that fight or flight, what he encourages you to do is run in place or go to the gym or run outside, whatever you have to do for three minutes, just three minutes, like heavy, hardcore exercise. And that releases some of the buildup of those, that fight or flight endorphins. Uh, I, I don't remember the technical word. Um, and that, that gets you out. You also talked about the, the relationships and we talk frequently on the show that life moves at the speed of relationships. And I think that that's just really a good, interesting point, because in a lot of the corporations I've worked with, the CEO is also the VP of sales, is also the operations person. And it's the ability to give up that control and trust in the system and processes built by the team. Do you see that control as a factor or is it more just about the uncertainty? I think it's a little bit of both. I think most people who venture into entrepreneurship, whether... um, you know, they set out or they were thrust into it, they are some level of control freak. So I think that, you know, there definitely is a control situation, but obviously the fear uh, comes into place as well. But I think so when typically by the time that I'm or anyone from my team is walking in, usually they've got a pretty good marketing uh, ahead of marketing, right? They're generating good leads. Uh, they've somewhat operationalized their business. Um, but that sales component usually is that last piece of the day to day that the founder is still engaged in and them needing to hand that off is ultimately what, um, what determines that. So, um, you know, again, if the money's not coming in, 
then they, they, you know, they can't solve for that. So that's, that's kind of usually when we're walking in is when all the other things have been handed off, but it's the, um, it's, it's that one piece, the sales has not been handed off. Yeah. And so you come in and you're like, Hey, time to hand it off. And in a perfect world, they say, absolutely. I was just thinking that. And you get to work for some of our listeners. Can you give us a couple golden nuggets about number one, why they would want to hand something off? Uh, and then number two, what they can do to busy themselves. Cause now there's this negation, right? So they hand it off and a lot of them come into the, well, now what do I do in my business type thing? Right. So I think uh, a couple of things. So I'll answer the second part first. I mean, what do you do? I mean, like, we'll figure it out. I mean, you know, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not your mom to tell you what you need to do. I mean, either you're either, you know, you can take, you can put your feet up and go and lay down on a beach. I mean, you're more than welcome to do that. Oh, um, you so can, right, now. <laughs> right? <laughs> or you can, you know, you can work on the business rather than inside the business. I mean, I would hope that, you know, your, your business has some level of, of scalability built into it where you're looking to create either, whether it be scaling offers or just really becoming a genuine CEO. Um, one of the things that a lot of times when we get called in, they are forced to hand things off to us because um, one of, I mean, I think, I, and this resonates with me. I'm, I'm not sure if this will resonate with you or not, but I'm, I'm a firm believer. You have not made it until you've been sued. Um, once you get sued, by somebody, <laughs> that's, that's your ticket to, you know, that's your ticket to like making it. That's, that's your ticket to right. the show. And, you know, once, once you're making 10, 15, $20 million, I would hope that you're making some level of noise in your industry. And then someone's got their hand out. Someone's doing something dumb. There's always some, once you get into that level, you know, you've got, uh, HR problems, you've got hiring and recruiting and talent acquisition. There are all of these cans of worms just start opening up that your day just becomes filled. And if you don't take control of it and you don't have, you know, whether it be, you know, what, whatever people want to call them, whether it be buffer days or vision days or days where you're walk, you know, working on that, um, you know, that larger scale, um, that's, that, that's where I, I may encourage you to spend your time. But if you don't have that, I mean, I don't know what kind of business you have at that point, but I mean, shoot, I mean, if, if you're good and you don't have to do that, good, go, go sit back and stop putting your fingers where it doesn't belong. Mm -hmm. And so let's take that a step further. When you're working with these companies or you're about to work with these companies, what are some of the lies that they're telling themselves about their own success? Oh, I'm the only one that can do it. Oh, you know, the, the people want to talk to me or the clients need me or, or there will never be a good enough. I mean, it's just, it's always, it's always some form of fashion of that. And um, I mean, maybe to a certain extent, no, you don't have anyone at your organization today that could do it as, as well as you can. Um, but if you don't build that out, of course, you'll never have anyone as good as you to do that. Number one. And number two, there's no, no one says that you are perfect and nor were you perfect when you first started. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's a, it's a timeline thing. How much longer do you want to keep doing it? Um, and frankly that, you know, the, the client lie, oh, the clients all want to talk to me. Yeah. They want to talk to you because you've set up your business that way, but then <laughs> they, they don't know any different. They think you're the expert. So they want to talk to the expert. If you bring somebody else in place, that's as competent, if not more competent than you, because they're not being pulled in a million different directions and you build them up as the expert, the client's just going to want to speak to them. 
So, yeah. I mean, yeah, those are, those would be the typical lies I hear. Yeah, it's interesting. So I read every year the uh, the Ultimate Sales Machine by Chet Holmes, mm-hmm. and you know it's January, so of course I'm I'm knee dip deep in it again. And what always fascinates me is, aside from what we all just talked about, it's also you've said it a couple of times the strategic positioning on the front end, and that's where you know we call it Strategic Friday. So mine's RFP Day Friday, right? So every Friday I go to the coffee shop, and that's that's when we work on the business from a strategic perspective, so that way it allows it to come out. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at also is when you free up your time, it gives you that opportunity and that growth. What kind of results do people typically see when they start to outsource their sales? So, um, when they, I mean, you know, when they're not the only person doing it. Is right. Kind of yeah. So I, could, could you clarify that question? You mean when, when we're coming in like our results or when someone just hands it off in general and has someone competent doing it? Well, I would like to say something competent, but the reason I think you and I get along so well is because I know you're good at what you do. So feel free to brag yourself up a little bit because people need exactly what you do. I've I've leveraged it. You you know what's going on. Right. So I mean, I'll you know, I'll just, you know, as you say brag on myself, I'll just talk a little bit about the you know, some of the successes we've had. And um, you know, we took one company, it was a SaaS company out of uh, northern Dallas. Um, we took them from five five million to twelve million ARR in one year, um, just by simply systematizing their sales team. We actually we we did not end up adding headcount. We we hired what? two people. Yeah, we we hired two people during the year, um, but both of them ended up ultimately flushing out and never contributing to a dollar. It was the existing team that they already had in place, which was four people um, that grew and that you know essentially two xed their uh, annual recurring revenue. So that was one. Um, most, most of our impact is typically felt on average deal size. Um, the way in which we build out the uh, sales conversations and the playbooks, they are typically far and away different than what anyone else will have seen. Uh, so then the conversations completely shift. And usually that significantly positively impacts the the average deal size so we just went from one of my current clients we went from average deal size of seventeen thousand dollars in june we ended the year with average deal size of sixty thousand dollars and right now we're looking at about seventy seven thousand dollar average deal size so um volume of number of deals has certainly gone down a little bit. I think they went from about selling roughly, I don't know, 20-ish deals a month to probably 15, 16 deals. So it's gone down a little bit. But when the average deal size has gone up, you know, exponentially like that 4X, I I don't think anyone really gives a shit. (laughs) And also true. I hope not. I mean, well, I mean, at the end of the day, you're just dealing with less people and you're dealing with, you know, bigger bigger case values so that, you're working, um, you know, you're, you're giving people the attention that they need. Yeah. And I mean, the lifetime value of the customer just did this thing. Um, oh, crap. And I'm going to try to remember and I'm going to butcher it. But basically, Walmart has a lower price point to get in. But the lifetime value of the customer is more because that customer will visit them about once every two weeks. Whereas Target, they get a higher initial value, but the customers don't visit nearly as often. So the lifetime value, I think, over like five years or something like that winds up being double lifetime value of the customer because of that increase in not only transaction size, but in your world's deal size. And it just, it always fascinates me how that works. So 
We're going to leave the listeners with, give me your two rapid fire tactics that they can take in and implement strategically on their business today. If they never reach out to any of us, we never know who they are. What are two things they can do today to build? Um, I'm speaking to the founder. Yep. I would say, don't try to clone yourself. Find someone that's a little bit different than you because, and the reason why I say that is because if you find someone that's even somewhat similar to you, you're going to have tendencies to um, show them how you do things because they're similar to you and it makes sense when they are not like you at all. Make sure obviously you're compatible, but when they just have a different approach and different outlook, you will feel more, you will feel right about just presenting them with information, the, the pertinent information that they need and allowing them to find their own path. This will allow them to, um, again, we're talking about sales, so they will. this will allow them to pitch from their own standpoint rather than trying to mirror you. And people have a tendency to try and, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Or, you know, this, the founder, the CEO is staring over my shoulder. I'm going to do it the way he does it uh, or she does it. And but again, that that does not work. So that would be the one thing is find someone that's a little bit uh, uniquely qualified, diff, different than you. Uh, and again, it's it. Otherwise, you end up with homogeneous talent, which you know you're not really furthering the needle. So that'd be the one thing I'd say. And then the second thing I would say is, um, okay, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth here. Oh, I like it. <laughs> data, data is important. All right, don't get me wrong. All right, data okay. is important. But data is like an imaginary friend. It can only tell you what you want to see. And it only tells you historically what's happening. So I'm not saying don't track. I'm not saying don't set goals. Of course, track your metrics, make data-driven decisions. However, I can't stand it when someone says data is king. Because if you have no idea how to genuinely interpret that data, you don't have a true reference of what baseline or benchmark genuinely is you might have you might have an understanding of what baseline at your company is but if you've been doing everything wrong that's not that's not an appropriate baseline <laughs> measure off of so what i always tell everybody is how you know it's the old question how long is a piece of string so again data is improvement data is important from a general improvement standpoint but only when you really bring in ideas that come out of left field you will have no data points to address from that's when you genuinely have to have a finger on the pulse and have a genuine understanding of what it is that you're doing uh, to think about something from a strategic standpoint and those ideas that's going to be what gives you that exponential gain that's how we took our client from 17,000 average deal value to uh, $77,000 average deal value because we weren't trying to optimize we weren't trying to you know tweak um, we weren't looking at the data and saying, all right, well, email number five is when something falls apart. Let's, uh, let's, let's fix email number five. You have no clue. Maybe they, maybe the deal was dead by, you know, by the time it hit a particular stage at email number three, it just limped into email number five. And that's when it finally died. It was critically and mortally wounded at email number three, right? You know what I mean? It's like the old adage, like you want to stop all deaths, you know, shut down hospitals because that's where all the deaths happen. And no, that's not going to solve everything. Yet that survivorship bias is ultimately what we're doing, what we're using to drive most of our de decisions and it doesn't work. So I don't know. I don't, 
you have to know what you're talking about in order to make genuine decisions. And I think we have too many nerds out there right now that have no idea what they're talking about and telling people, well, this is a data driven decision on sales. It's like, dude, you've never sold a thing in your life. Don't, don't, don't talk to me. Let's, let's not get started on those people because we could turn an entire show into our, our, our thoughts on those people. <laughs> like I can already feel my tension raising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's how we bonded as you and I kind of dislike a lot of places. Uh, not a lot of I places. just, I just like drama and gossip. So as long as, as long as we're, you know, do, I, I, see, you told me not to swear. So I'm trying not to swear. Well, I'm trying now to we're just going to swear the whole time. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I just, I just enjoy shit talking. Cause you know, I, I, I love a good challenge. Right. So oh, yeah, me too. And that's, yeah. And I think, Oh, we could have so many shows together on this this topic alone because, I mean, even in the coaching industry, right? So I had a call today and we'll wrap up with this, even though I said we'll wrap up five times. But if we have any listeners left, hopefully they find some value in this part. Um, I had a call today and we were talking about, technically, I'm, I'm a high performance coach, right? And I've got the speaking and the training. So depending on how you talk to me or how you enter the funnel, the titles can change because titles don't really matter. It's the results, right? We both know this cool story. High five. What interests me is as we were talking, she makes the comment about how she just typically hates coaches. And I'm like, girl, I, I get you. I hate them all too, because most of them cling behind the, the title of a coach without having the data of the results. And I draw the parallel to what you're talking about right now, where it's like, don't confuse false data with the creation of the, the building side of the business. We had a guy in one of the corporations that I was helping. And his big thing was like, yeah, I got a sale. I'm second in the company. Like ego boosts all around. But it's like your personality can get you all the sales you want. But if you don't learn the underlying process, when the process improves and you can't pick up on the new one because you never learned the old one, you're going to go from second to being on the bottom. And if you do by chance get to cling to the second, you're not actually learning anything. And second could be way further than behind than in your potential because you're you're marrying false data right. i'm just glad that that message was said it was my entire long-winded no i agree i mean that's that's exactly <laughs> what i'm saying so no, I'm, I'm with you brother yeah and let the shit talking continue so right. we're gonna wrap up today everybody how can they find you how can they get in touch with you oh uh i'm not i'm not that social of a fella so just hit me on <clears throat> um, that would be the weirdest sales CEO I've ever talked to that says he's not social, by the way. I, you know what, guys? I mean, I, <laughs> you know, here, and you know, we're going to end it on this one. I just can't stand those dudes that are always on social media that are just like, oh, I, you know, close this deal and this and this and this. And, you know, they're, they're posting you all these videos. Blend. I just like, you know what, man? Like, if, if you're actually busy selling and you're actually busy doing it, you're not talking about it. So that's, that's kind of, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm just saying, you know, I'm, I'm happy to put my bank account down with any of these other fellas that are, that are talking about it. So, uh, that being said, uh, hit me up on, uh, rosegardenconsulting.com. Now, if, can you cut that part out? I feel like a real jerk when I said that. So, ah, right, whatever, who cares? Let's just no, I'm leaving it. I'm leaving it. Cause I like I it. Cause here's what I'm going to do. Not only will I give them your website, <laughs> I'm going to give them mine and say, Hey, if you reach out to my homeboy, I get an affiliate commission because I am that loud talker on social media. There you go. So I think this just worked out strategically. If you want me to right, cut it, I'll right. cut it. See, always selling. Always and selling. And I won't cut it. So seriously, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> want me to, and then we'll have a conversation. Um, yeah. No, cool. So do you want to try again on where they can, I can edit that. Yeah, no, uh, hit me up on uh, rosegardenconsulting.com. That's, uh, that's our consulting firm. Uh, happy to help anybody that um, has any questions. 
<laughs> You're awesome. Okay, high five. I'm gonna hit stop now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that that was my humble version. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Shark, so if that was as good for you as it was for me, learning all about what it takes for a CEO to step out of their comfort zone, embrace their fears, hand off their sales process to their team, then high five to you as well. Don't forget, as we wrap up today, please, please, please do yourself a favor and head to kaylinellsbury.com backslash podcast and download our special executive briefing all about how to leverage neuroscience for sales success. This is about the mindset of what it takes, the anatomy of a winner, the anatomy of a high achiever, and specifically for your sales team. Again, that is kaylinellsbury.com backslash podcast. Until next time.